0: Please stay tuned for Universal Perspectives with your host, Chris Skyhawk. Good evening, KZOX listeners. This is Chris Skyhawk. I'll be your host on Universal Perspectives tonight. We're going to have two very important guests. I have Zia Catalini from Friends of Enchanted Meadow, who will talk about the continuing struggle to save a sanctuary on the Lower Albine River. And I will also have Pat Higgins who will talk about restoration pre-contact restoration on parts of the of the Eel River. Hello Zia, do we have you? Hey. Hi there she is. Hello Zia. Hi, how
1: are you doing?
0: Pretty well. I'm. I was, you had, I was pretty nervous there with, with you not being with me, <laughs> so I'm, I feel better now.
1: Yeah, we got dis- disconnected a few times.
0: Yeah. Okay. But here you are. Well, Zia, you've been. You were with friends of friends of Enchanted Meadow. What I would like you to do. I know that you are having some current struggles with Mendocino Redwood Company in the area again. I wonder, was wondering if you would start out. This lot, telling, telling our listeners a little bit of the history of Enchanted Metal. Of course, there was the legendary Albion Nation uprising in the early 1990s. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and how it came to be that there was some sanctuary there.
1: Okay. That's kind of a tall order. It's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Um, we sued originally under the name of the Albion River Watershed Protection Association in 1989 And there were like about five people in Little River who worked really hard on it 24-7 for about a year. And uh, the case went into the appeals court, so it sat dormant for about three years. And during that time, we were able to rally people and let them know what was going on. And then in 1992, when Louisiana Pacific came back around to log it, everybody was ready and primed. And we were really blessed to have Judy Berry here, who was a great help. She was able to organize all the direct action and keep people in the forest and safe. And we worked really hard together with them and with the courts. And eventually we got to stay. They were able to log for six weeks until we got to stay the second time around. And then after that, uh, I guess Sal P was just fed up with with all the protesters they were just you know, it was pretty outrageous it was it was great all the different types of actions that that came down and went on to slow down the logging and basically LP just threw their hands up in the air and sued all of us they sued over 100 people in the community and we regarded it as a slap suit though later on in the court system they didn't identify it as a slap suit They said it wasn't, but we felt it was a a slap-suited strategic lawsuit against public participation. And that's generally when a corporation or a huge, powerful entity wants to squelch the voice of a neighborhood, an association, whatever. And that's basically what LP did to us. It's calling, chilling the people, you know. Sure. But they actually didn't silence us. Everybody fought, and... uh, the slapsuit went on for many, many years—it was really, really quite a burden. A large member, of, a large group of the community, settled out. Probably about maybe three and a half years into the slap suit, it was just really a horrible thing because it was. Um,
0: like I remember it was, up it was going on when I first arrived in this community.
1: Stuff. pardon me.
0: It was going on when I first arrived in this community.
1: Oh, it was really horrible. It was just really horrible i developed this problem where i would go to the post office well this was actually after my baby ended up dying during this process and so after i was still being slapped after i was going through um uh, grief mourning the loss of my infant daughter and um i would go to the post office in mendocino and park my car and i just would sit there for like a half hour couldn't get out of the car because uh I just didn't want to deal with what was in the post office box. Right,
2: <laughs> It was right. just
1: with <laughs> all kinds of legal papers and interrogatories and such. And it's, it's really stressful to be sued by a large corporation because they do have the deep pockets. And they sued all of us. So a large group of people sued, out, sued um, or settled out after about three and a half years into it. And then um, a few of us lingered on, and that was um, Anna Marie Stimberg, Beth Bosk, and myself.
0: So that led to the the sanctuary in Albany River. What? How many? How many acres? And tell us about that.
1: Okay. Well, it evolved into a uh, a settlement that involved the transfer of land. Uh, I was offered um, the wetland sanctuary, and uh, if I agreed not to um, sue them back for maintaining a frivolous lawsuit against me for for five years and subsequently at that at that time I decided to give it to Beth to put in to her settlement with the hopes that I could get some forest land too. And it worked out that we did get some forest land. We got Raven's call. So the wetlands settle the wetlands today is um fifty two acres. But back then when the settlement happened it was over seventy five. So I'm not really sure what happened. I don't know how we lost acreage, but we did lose acreage, Uh and the Ravens call is 26 acres, and then there was an interlinking sanctuary between the two, and that was one that um, LP said I had to buy. I really didn't want to have to buy it. I felt like I'd been through enough, and everybody had been through enough, but that's what happened, and eventually we bought that area, and that I named after my dad. I call it the Albert Catalini Conservancy, and it's 10 acres. And right now, that particular uh, sanctuary area is, um, is the most vulnerable of all of our sanctuaries in terms of the impacts the, the MRC logging is doing. Like.
0: Yeah, let, we'll fast MRC. forward a little yeah, bit, I mean, of course. It's not, Redwood Company. Let's fast forward a little bit. Of course, it's not Louisiana Pacific anymore. It's Mendocino Redwood Company.
1: Yes. It is. It's Mendocino Redwood Company.
0: Okay, tell us what's happening around those sanctuaries that you are so concerned about.
1: Okay, well, what's happening, well, this, there's three sanctuaries, and they're all connected. The lower sanctuary, when I say the lower sanctuary, that's the one that's um, at, at river level. It's, it's, it's at the lowest elevation, and the highest... Sanctuary is Raven's Call, which is about the same elevation as the Little River Airport. So if you're driving on Airport Road, it's like 600-plus feet elevation. And from Raven's Call, it goes downslope to an area which is called the Albert Catalini Conservancy, which is mainly a riparian corridor that's about 300 feet long, 300 feet wide, excuse me, and about 10 acres long. And then that Sanctuary connects into the Enchanted Meadow Wetland Sanctuaries, which are the, the amazing wetlands on the Albion River. Yes. And it's almost two miles of um, river wetlands in that particular sanctuary. It's absolutely stunning.
0: So what is MRC doing in the area right now that has you so concerned?
1: Well, one of the things they're doing is they are shortening the tops of the tree lines. Like what they like to do is they like to put in roads. Um... They put them in on the tops of the ridges, and then they clear out the, t- the highest, tallest trees, which are the ones that are growing at the highest elevation. Those trees are knocked out. And then from that area, once they clear those trees, they start extracting more trees, and they pull them up from lower elevations. But if you're down below on the river, you can look up, and you can see the tree line in places has dropped like about 100 feet. It's really sad. So in areas now, when you go up the river, if you have a discerning eye and look, you can see that the tree line is no longer towering. There's one spot where they're still towering, and that is at the westernmost portion of uh, the Enchanted Meadow Wetland Sanctuary, and that area is a big concern to us, too. In 1987, Louisiana Pacific put in a... A hall road um, off Road sixteen, and it winds down into the bottomlands where the where the river is and the wetlands are. And it's really steep. And a couple of areas on the road that um, LP put in, they actually put them over uh, springs. So it's like underground streams. so it's it's wet, and the roads tend to collapse. And this road collapsed uh, the the dead man's hall Road collapsed in 2018 from about 630 feet high elevation, and um, the slide came down, it was 1,100 feet long, and it went all the way down the slope, took out trees and these trees and all of this mud went right across um, a portion of our wetlands called... um, Half Moon Trestle. It's really beautiful. It's like our calling card. You know how Yosemite has Half Dome? Sure. And you know, everybody looks at Half Dome. Well, Half Moon Trestle is like our calling card for the whole area, and they they ruined a large portion of that. Well, actually, about 25% of it. So, Zia, I and
0: know you recently... there was so recently... much mud
1: there. It was like three feet deep in suction, like quicksand.
0: But Zia, I know you recently in court.
1: Fortunately, she was able to get herself out, but she was down to her waist in this suction mud. It's just a big mess. So anyway, we have a road above our sanctuary areas that is unstable, and it's wet. It needs to be watched constantly. And not only is it a danger to um, the environment and the scenic beauty of the Albion River, but I think it's also a, I think it's a, grave, a great danger for MRC's employees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think it's pretty scary.
0: Zia, I know the recently you were in court, tell the tell listeners what, what, what are you doing in, in the legal process now.
1: Well, right now we're kind of jumping through a lot of procedural hoops. And that's the way it's set up in the court, and especially set up that way with CEQA laws. There's lots of unusual twists and turns that one can get trapped in. Um, we're trying to get a TRO, um, a restraining order, until the case can be fully heard. And at this point, they've logged quite a bit. Um, when we we went to court, we were hoping to go to court, actually, on the 14th of October. And then that case, or that hearing, was actually uh, delayed by Judge Nadell till, like, the 24th or 25th. And then, unbeknownst to us, later that day, CAL FIRE had a special, it's called, like guess, I'm going to put this in error quotations, uh, special appearance. I'm not sure if it was by Zoom or what or how it was done, but CAL FIRE proceeded to tell the judge that we had not served them and that we only provided them with a a portion of the um, administrative record. So at that point, Judge Nadal ruled against us for the TRO uh, without prejudice. So then we subsequently, and, and by the way, we did serve CDF. CDF has been avoiding receiving the service they're all served now but we've served them numerous times and tried to serve them with the sheriff and it was just a problem <laughs> they were avoiding service and delay delay so anyway we had another hearing scheduled for october 3rd and that one has been postponed or continued till next friday on the 17th so we have a big court date that day so anybody listening out there who wants to come and support us Please, please do. Uh, We have a definite time this time. It's at 9.30 a.m. in Department E. Happens to be a full moon day. So that's Friday, November 19th. So everybody's welcome to come.
0: And that will be at the Ukiah Courthouse?
1: Yes, Superior Courthouse in Ukiah.
0: Okay, people, I hope we mark your calendars out there.
1: Yeah, it's a busy week with the Board of Supervisors meeting on Monday the 15th. To support Jackson Demonstration Forest, and then on Wednesday, the seventeenth, we have another announcement. Uh, one of the things about um, Enchanted Meadow and the sanctuaries and such—it's a, it's a remote place, and it's a place the people who go there, who know it, love it, and it's just incredibly beautiful. But it's a di- it's a difficult place for people to get to because there's no public parking area. And um, it's really a long hike. It's not like driving over Big River Bridge and looking down at Big River and seeing the parking lots and just, you know, tooling off the road, parking your car and jumping on the hall road and walking. Very, very different. Um, But we do have the one undisputed access that we do have to the wetland sanctuary and our other two sanctuaries are down um, on the river. And um, we're going to have a... Canoe-kayak day coming up on Wednesday, November 17th. And we're going to meet at the Albion Field Station at 8.30 in the morning. And from there, we'll all get together and we'll rent. We'll be renting canoes and kayaks, and we'll be going up the river. And for sure, we'll be able to see, um, we'll be entering um, Enchanted Meadow Wetlands Sanctuary from the western portion. Uh, there's like a little tiny island there. It's actually a crib pen. It was built for the logging, logging days. But it's had different names um, over the year years. used to be called, I think, Earl of the Pearls Island, and now it's called Lone Tree Island. But we'll be entering there, and then we're going to walk on Lone Tree Road, a.k.a. Lone Tree Trail, or Tick um, Alley. There's a lot of ticks in there, but it's absolutely beautiful. And we're going to walk through there, and then we're going to see the Albert Catalini Conservancy, and then we can show you the areas in the Albert uh, Catalini Conservancy that are really at risk right now. So it should be really beautiful. And if we have time, we'll, we'll walk into Raven's Call.
0: Now, is there, a place require, where, pardon me? is there a place where all these activities will be listed so the people can, if they want to... So I
1: can put it on the listserv. I can definitely put it on the listserv.
0: You have a website, too, right?
1: Yeah, we do have a website.
0: Let us tell us who that is
1: so our our website address is um, www.friendsofenchantedmeadow.org, dot org and anybody can write me or any of our board members at info at friends dot org so that's a good a good address to keep in mind to write down if you have any questions about the upcoming um canoe, kayak, trip, um, let us know. The, um, I'll just go over some of the prices there. Um, the canoes to rent are $35 a day, but you can put more than one person in the canoe, two very safely in a canoe and maybe a small child. So the cost could be shared there. A single kayak rental is $25 a day. And, um, a double kayak is the same price as a canoe, which is $35 a day. And, um... Everybody who um, shoves off from this place will have a life jacket. They do pr- provide life jackets, and we'll be leaving. At, we'll be gathering at eight thirty, and probably leaving closer to nine by the time we get everything together. Before, so you would need to bring something to eat. Definitely bring water. Bring whatever you want to eat.
0: Zia, so, please remind our listeners really one nice. more time about about, about the date that you would like people to show up at the court.
1: Okay, the courthouse state, is Friday, November 19th, and it's 9.30 in the morning in Department E. And then um, there's a few other things we have planned. I don't really want to announce them on the air, but if anybody wants to help in any way, please contact us, because we've got a, a couple of fun, other fun things planned that I think will be helpful to our cause which is to protect the the watershed and to protect the Enchanted Meadow Wetland Sanctuary. The um, area is designated a wild and scenic river, and we're actually losing that beauty. The scenic beauty is actually disappearing right now with the result of MRC decapitating the tops of the ridges and actually thinning out a lot of trees, too. It's, it's not quite the same. It's still beautiful, but we want to, we want to stop the degradation, most definitely. We want to
0: try, well, Zia, hopefully
1: stop the siltation. I'm not sure how we're going to do that yet. As long as they keep putting in these roads and using heavy equipment on the top, I'm just not sure how we're going to resolve that one yet.
0: Zia, I want to ask, just to close our interview, I'd like to ask a personal question. You've obviously been, been in this fight for decades now. I'm curious where you find your endurance.
1: I, I think the Great Spirit put me here to do this work, and I, I, you know, I love the area. It's different when I go down there now, though. When I go down there, I'm just, I really feel a lot of responsibility, you know, when I was a little hippie girl 40 years ago going down there. You know, smoking a joint, and dancing and singing in the meadow was—it was different. But I always used to think, oh, it's such a beautiful area. This place needs to be saved. I <laughs> <You used to laughs> always think that. So anyway, I think I—I I think uh, I don't know. Partly losing my baby too. It's kind of like I don't—I don't, I don't want to feel like her losing. You know, her losing her life was in vain. So uh-huh. that keeps me going too. And we need the trees. We definitely need the trees.
0: Well, Zia, I thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to move on to our next guest, but and thank, thank you, for, you very much. Good thank night. you for being. Thank you for thank being you with everybody. us. Bye, bye. That was Zia Catalini with Friends of Enchanted Meadow. You can go to their site friendsofenchantedmeadow.org. As as my promo stated, I'm going to take a different tack for a period of time with my show. I'm going to start a series called Surviving Late-Stage Capitalism, What's Next? As many of you know, I'm a longtime environmental activist and will remain so because I have seen how these acts of extending care for our planet deepens our love for her. Recent times and events has brought me to deeply consider where our Earth and her living things are heading. The Earth has already been through five mass extinctions and with the efforts of COP26, Almost certain to produce nothing, substantive and binding, we are left to consider, to wonder, is a sixth mass extinction inevitable? Will capitalism continue to play its hands until it rings out the life forces of our planet? We must come to be realistic about the stagnation built into the, our system. The inability of our political, spiritual, and cultural systems to effectively respond to our, our self-made crisis is thoroughly appalling. So we must look, move to the margins of political movement, spiritual thought, and cultural commonality. In this series, we'll explore those margins and bring to the discussion, as our theme song says, A Ghost of a Chance. As we explore what a new earth might look like. This is going to be Pat Hagen.
2: do Ghost
0: of a chance, will be Good evening, Pat.
3: Yes, good evening. Mr.
0: Higgins, Mr. thank you so much for being with us tonight.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: You are the first guest on my new series, Surviving Late-Stage Capitalism. By way of introduction, I, I will tell our listeners, we have a mutual friend named Adha Stevenson. Hello, Adha, are listening. She is with the California Indian Water Commission. I was spending some time with her a little, a little while ago. And she told me that, about this project on parts of the Eel River, which includes Laytonville, of course, where people wanted to do some restoration. And my Yeah. Yeah. And at first I thought, oh, well, there's so many restoration projects, right? But she got my attention. She said, no, they want to go to pre-contact restoration like hundreds of years ago. I was stunned. Yeah. I, I, I literally gasped. I was so excited.
3: 160 to p- pull a number out of the air.
0: Yeah. So, Pat, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Eber Recovery Project and this project in particular.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for your interest. And I hold uh, uh, Ada Stevenson in the highest regard. Um, she is a very effective advocate, and I kind of um, feel like Ada at the right time with allies from other Northern California tribes finally got the state of california to understand that there was indigenous people over here so uh <clears throat> excuse me mike ruth the eel river recovery project actually was formed in 2011 and we did scoping meetings uh around the basin and then we had a retreat at emmendall and uh people embraced uh, an agenda of trying to uh, fix the river, trying to um, elevate the consciousness of their neighbors. Um, you know, try to expand the wilderness and get people out in it and, you know, make sure the fish are okay. And uh, we monitored temperature. We monitored uh, cyanobacteria with uh, University of California uh, Berkeley. That's uh, toxic algae. But also at the same time, we've always been open to and supportive of uh, empowerment of the native peoples of the eel. Uh, we've worked with, uh, the Bear River Rancheria, uh, at our inception when we were doing fall Chinook dives down low, uh, the, the Weah tribe, uh, Vinnie DeMarzo came with us, uh, and, and they, you know, they really are, uh, very traditional and their, um, their victory over the wind farm, uh, preventing their sacred ground from having you know, 500-foot-high wind machines that, you know, catch on fire and then left as junk. And I committed at that point to making the eel a carbon sink. We need to figure out how to, with low-tech and with traditional ecological knowledge, understand how we can both repair the eel and set an example for the planet. And um, in other places around the globe where things have been too long disturbed and uh, the bridge to uh, aboriginal understanding uh, is lost, um, they are depopulated and we are rich because um, there's living memory and there's a knowledge and understanding of how the land was tended And right now we have uh, Let the Land Go untended. And uh, I have along the way picked up a maxim which I believe is kind of a distillation of harmony-based culture, which is what the Native Americans um, embrace here in Northern California. And that is, if you're good to nature, nature's going to make you rich. If you work against nature, nature's going to play tricks on you. And so... Um, The harmony of the uh, Native American sculpting of the landscape with low-intensity frequent fire created productivity far beyond what nature, left to its own devices, would have created. And so, you know, I grew up, um, I was 14 when the Wilderness Act passed, and, you know, lock the gate, nature will perfect itself. I pretty much bought that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, until I really got to know, uh, Ernie Maryfield is on our board and he's indigenous Wailaki and a living bridge to the past and um, you know Ernie said, Pat, it was just like it was easy as lighting a rat nest on a ridge and so um, these folks had traversed the country and strategically used fire and uh... had favored the oak and the oak is a keystone species um... and if people haven't read it uh, secret of the oak woodlands by kate marionchild is a wonderful book about our local treasure uh... and so we traded oak for fur and it wasn't a good deal and we're not talking about giant douglas fir in the rainforest We're talking about fur that just are tall enough to overtop the oaks and then kill them. And then you don't have acorns. And then you have a tree that drinks all summer. And then you have fuels on the ground. And this is the tale of the North Fork. And it went up like a bomb in the August fire because of 160 years of neglect. Mm. And so it's time for us to ally with our uh, uh, native brothers and sisters in the eel to consider ourselves enriched because... Their culture still is uh, among us, and it has not been uh, celebrated or elevated. And uh, now I'm ice. finding that um, I'll just I'll just say that this way. This is the question you kind of ask me. Now I'm finding people are ready for that. They are. They are, embrace um, you know the the same harmony-based principles, and they want to uh, really. Uh, they understand that's the road home. I have. Five forest health clients uh, in the, right like 12 actually, but five areas in 10 Mile. And they're all for taking the landscape back to pre-contact and getting the oaks back and getting the native grasses back. And, you know, 10 Mile, that's, that's big. That's most of it until you get on the, the west side in the steep ground. And then you're Pat, in the rainforest. Pat, but,
0: you should um, tell the listeners where 10 Mile is.
3: 10 Mile Creek should have, remain the east branch of the South Fork. It runs through Laytonville, and thank you, because everyone mistakes it for the Ten Mile River, which is very beautiful and comes in north of Fort Bragg. But Ten Mile Creek is actually mostly away from 101, uh, except from Black Oak Ranch to the Rattlesnake Summit, and it is a 65 square miles and half the Upper South Fork. Uh, it has Cotto Creek, it has the Cotto Indian Reservation, Uh, It has other marvelous tributaries on the west side that come, flow from the peak, uh, Mill Creek, Streeter Creek, Big Rock, and Peterson, or um, as Woods Wilson says, they used to be called Ulinden and that's way down on Ten Mile. And as you get, um, Ten Mile was better salmon habitat than the Upper South Fork, and the Upper South Fork today is the refugia where the coho remain, for instance. And if we restore Ten Mile, they'll move right back in there. And so, yeah, Ten Mile isn't well-recognized as a creek. Uh, it's a lot of private ground, but it has magnificent oak riparian um, and the Kato tribe uh, and, the, the, and their ancestors. would slow it, spread it, sink it. They had lakes everywhere. They threw nets over the docks. They grew um, uh, freshwater clams for money, dentelia. Um, and, of course, the fish were crazy abundant. And then uh, they were, um, the, the Kato tribe was marginalized there, uh, but still persisted. But then um, the Anglo culture, the European culture, was, digit drain it? And so what we're finding now is that, uh, you know, when the six to nine inches of rain hit on October 23rd, how much went in the ground in Ten Mile Creek and how much went off like a, a you know, water off a duck's back. And in the day of the condo, it all stalled. And we need to think about that and we need to think about the, the landscape sponge and um, not just, you know, who's got a pond or, you know, but we do need to forbear in Ten Mile Creek to the degree that we can and increase water storage so that uh, so that we stress aquatic ecosystems less but um, I, there's opportunities in, uh, in Ten Mile Creek Basin uh, where I've had um, several uh, grants, a planning grant and now some uh, some grants for implementation and so I've, I'm really fortunate because I think the people in the hills there around Leightonville are very enlightened. There are so many good stewards and the gates to us are open for restoration on thousands of acres, and those same folks are—they uh, want to see the Kato uh, culture um, elevated. They want to see their culture protected, and they don't feel threatened by Native Americans and Kato tribal members um, coming around and checking out—you know what's going on on their land—and this. Chris will really help the Kato tribe become more familiar with its own history because, for so many years, they they were not welcome, and um, and so it's really cool that all of our forest health clients are. Um, they want to restore. Uh, they don't want to exploit. Uh, none of them have any desire to uh, have any kind of commercial activity, and so, um, gosh, man, I'm. I'm supposed to wait for you to ask me well, questions.
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes, Pat. Well, I would love to explore with you. To me, this is a very exciting evolution in colonizer indigenous relationships that so many people, so-called the property owners, have, have historically had a very hostile relationship to the aboriginal people here. And now you're seeing, you're seeing a, a real shift. I'm, I'm very struck by it and hardened by this, this trend.
3: Yeah, and and you know, um, it's interesting because this isn't everyone of course. No, uh,
0: I'm not. I'm people serious. with <laughs> retrogressive views in
3: every geographic area. Yeah. But if you reach a certain level of um, openness and um, then it kind of, that's a new social license. So I hope, uh, as you do, that this is a new day. Uh, up here in Eureka with the WIAT uh, getting back uh, to Law Island, city of Eureka actually flat out deeding it to them. That was cool. And then when our supervisors voted with the Weot not to let the giant wind project happen, which really had confused the Arcata environmental community, it was terrible. It was going to be like melting hillsides, chopping up uh, the birds that we love, and so um, now uh, the the Kato tribe and the Round Valley tribes they should be given budgets from the Bureau of Indian Affairs for co management for fire. Um, the 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 uh, the youth of Round Valley. I'm working in Round Valley High School and in the Round Valley Elementary School, and our point person is Isabella Lemieux, and we have a great relationship with Kelda Britton at um, Round Valley High School, and we got a grant for one of her students last year, Bam Britton, to make a movie. And if people go to eelriverrecovery.org, Bam Britton made a movie called... uh, uh, let's see, Ridge to River and Fish to Fire. And, um, we need to ignite the youth of Round Valley and the Cottle Youth and the youth of America because we need help in the forests. We need help intellectually understanding how they're going to change and we need help on the ground, man. And, you know, uh, I can still get around in the water, but I'm not much of a woods worker at 71. Mm -hmm. And we need youth out there. But, and you know, oftentimes the opportunity offered to native youth is like, go to school and learn science. They don't have to learn trigonometry to understand sculpting the landscape. And Kelda Britton and Ernie Merrifield are saying, um, classrooms without walls. So we're going to get um, Native American kids outside and teach them some of these concepts. we will be shooting for a Save the Redwoods League grant to take Native American kids to the Angelo Reserve and teach them about Redwood ecology and if they like the water, they see the fish underwater and all about the algae and everything. And so then, you know, it's time we gave uh, those kids a break, gave them a job,
0: you know, Pat, I'm really uh, struck by what you're saying because, <clears throat> as you know, I'm begin- beginning a new series tonight on talking about the collapse of late-stage capitals and what Earth will look like. And you're bringing up to me something that's very important, which is do we, how do we look to back to our past when we were more successful and living in harmony on Earth? And you're sketching a very strong portrait of that for us.
3: Yeah, and how do we redeem each individual? every kid needs a chance right now they don't really think they have one but because of the change of the times they do
0: maybe you could tell us just historically i know that the yale river was a very heavy salmon bearing river maybe you could describe it for us traditionally
3: Sure. The The Eel is a 3,600-square-mile basin, and it covers the coast range and all the way over into the Klamath Mountains in the northern uh, and eastern part. Uh, the The part that people see coming and going on 101 is the, uh, the beautiful rainforest of the west in the coast range there. But then in the center of the watershed is all of this grass and oak woodlands, And that actually goes all the way over to the east side until uh, the North Fork and Middle Fork Black Butte and Van Dusen watersheds rise up to 6,000 or something. And then they're they're very reminiscent of the Trinity Alps, not quite as charismatic, but um, historically the main channels, 350 miles of perfect low-gradient habitat with beautiful limpid pools probably 70 feet deep, wow. and they were connected <laughs> to the surface and groundwater, uh, cause there was no silt in the river. And so then these pools were like, they were like the ocean at the bottom. I mean, they're like groundwater temperatures are 52. You so summer, summer fish could come in there and just hold hold, it, just hang around. Uh, there wasn't too much warm water habitat in the eel uh, until after the 64 flood when it all flattened out and changed to a warm water ecosystem. It's it's reviving from 64, there's some hopeful signs, Uh, but then you know the rain and snow regime um, have altered and then also uh, the ocean conditions which really caught me flat footed uh, have been kind of letting the salmon down. The salmon are running right now, though, it's raining enough, and they love to come in. Historically, they'd come in in August and come into the deep parts of the river and just hold, and then run uh, with the rains. Um, They threw the nets out, and I think the cannery pack one year was 400,000 pounds of Chinook, and they weren't (laughs) catching a lot of the other ones. So um, it was, no, no, actually, it was 400,000 Chinook. It wasn't four hundred thousand pounds, and that was that was just that's you a, know
0: that's a whole lot of fish.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you know the Native Americans they would seasonally intercept them after communicating one with another, so that everybody got some. and It was actually taboo to take the fish before. Uh, they were kind of blessed, the first salmon ceremony. That was in the Sacramento River Indians. That was in the Klamath Indians. I believe that was also the culture of the Eel River Indians. So they never uh, over-harvested or got that competition thing going. And they never insulted their neighbors by, like, eating the fish that, you know, that they needed. And so that was, like, long-evolved, thousands of years, and uh, and a system... It was working, and it's it's not recognized that uh, that they, you know, Ernie Maryfield says if you know, his elders taught him that like live within the bounds of the landscape where you are, but increase its carrying capacity by nurturing it, and uh, of course, you know what people didn't know, Chris, is that the Waikiki. Actually, went from South Fork Mountain to Shelter Cove along the ridges, and uh, they tended all of it strategically from those points, and they kept uh, they kept their trails open with fire, and so then those fire trail you know created trails. They also fragmented fire on the landscape, so giant fires didn't run from one basin to another. Um, Am I making any sense?
0: Oh yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm enjoying listening to you very much. I hope our listeners are too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well I I feel lucky because, you know, uh, I'm still learning and um, now I'm working with Woods Wilson and Woods has a piece in Lower Ten Mile and he and his neighbors have just gotten a forest health management plan. And this is something, if people go to the org, we all need to get forest health management plans, not timber harvest plans, but to really understand uh, each of our properties and become stewards in the Native American sense because uh, we have cameras all around the eel, time-lapse cameras, partially funded by the Coastal Conservancy in 10 Mile. And on September 8th, and 9th. They actually create flow movies. They're really cool. I'm going to update them here pretty soon if people want to see what that is. Uh, But on September 8th, it went orange at 10 o'clock in the morning, went red at noon, and then it went black. And on September 9th, 2020, it went black for eight hours. So now, if you're not getting the picture that we're out of harmony with nature and that we have to do something different, then you're not tuned in.
0: What do you mean it went black?
3: Um, I mean, those those were the days that my friend down in arena called Mars Day. Everything from here to San Francisco went black. I mean, it was like people actually, people closer to the August fire actually had to wear headlamps. Um, Our, you know, our our landscape here on the Humboldt Coast was was such low luminance that it was um, almost nightlight conditions, but really kind of an oppressive blood red. Um, you know, turkeys roosting in the middle of the day all over the basin. Uh, animals acting like it was night, and that was the August. That was when the the August hit the North Fork.
0: Yes, I remember when Chico blew up a couple years ago. I just got out of rehab for my stroke. I was going over to Willits for an occupational therapy appointment, and the sky turned orange in Willits from Chico.
3: Oh, yeah, and those are, you know, those fires where they're, that was kind of uh, ran into the urban area up there. That's a whole different thing. But, you know, uh, you ought to think about having John Elgin on from um, the North Fork. He's went to, And, um, you know, he and his brother were calling it before the August, and they said, it's not okay that the firs are killing the oaks, and it's been going on for too long. And people all said, you guys want a log bat, don't you? So there's this real misperception and misunderstanding about the role of the fir tree when it runs without control into the meadows. Um, Tom Keeter. If people want to check out Tom Keeter, they can go to solarark.com uh, dot, dot on the web. But Tom is an archaeologist who studied the North Fork, and um, really, um, (coughs) the North Fork now is going to be like it was 3,500 to 8,500 years ago. It's going to be 2 degrees C warmer, it's not going to snow, and it's going to be grass and oaks. And if we just let it go back to nature, then in 50 years, it will burn hot, and then the soils will become less and less capable of supporting um, the, the grass and the oaks and the favorable species. And so, you know, we can't just let those public lands uh, on the Mendocino National Forest and Six Rivers National Forest fall into neglect. Uh, the uh, Round Valley Reservation was shrunk by 80% within just a few years of its inception, and those lands have not been tended since. And we need to start to do so uh, for the benefit of us all and uh, and also for um, social and uh, ecological justice. So let's work on that, huh?
0: Yes, that sounds good. You know, we're in, it's already five minutes to eight. I can't believe how fast time goes. What well, I was wondering if you would close with is, as part of this series, we are looking at, of course, anytime there's a crisis, which we clearly are in a planetary crisis, it seems like it's also creates opportunity, and it seems like it seems to me like that is what you are working on.
3: Yeah, and I, th- I think if people wanted to get it um, in a very short synopsis, uh, I was joined by a guy named Tim Bailey, and we did Eel Zoom Two. So if people go to Eel. RiverRecovery.org, and then they can see forest health zoom that's the way out as far as i can see chris and um we really need to work together in a coordinated way uh with with the tribes and to kind of rededicate ourselves and we're in transition with this pot industry it's a lot less profitable there's a lot of people came into the basin for idealistic reasons related to marijuana. I know that's a non sequitur for some, but uh, let's not have a brain drain of our youth or of these other people that have come here. Uh, let's entrain them into forest health. And forest health can fund landscape restoration um, in the meadow at near the Cotter Reservation where they ditched and diked it if we pulled up the brush in the meadow.
0: Pat, I'm sorry, we're we're going to have to close. And we could
3: could restore the wetlands there. Pat, I'm sorry, we're going to have to
0: close. Can you remind people of the website if they want to learn more?
3: eelriverrecovery.org. Okay. And then I'm at 707-223-7200-7200. And we do Facebook. Uh, Oh, and these are up on our Vimeo page, all of these recent eel zooms. So, Chris, I'm just thrilled to be on Wax. It's been years. Okay, we're going to have so, to say goodnight uh, now
0: because I have, I have a song to play. We have to be off the air by 8, Pat. Yeah. So I will Thanks be in touch you with you Thanks. soon. I'm sure we're going to be good friends over the years. Okay, Burton has a song for us.
2: your finger to the flame and teaches you the burning and you become a ripple in the river of our learning it locks you at the gateway of your dreams until the hour you recognize you've always had the key and you are walking in power Most folks can't see power unless it is in motion. I see fire in your eyes to move the tide across the ocean. There's a purpose in your passion, there's a reason for your tears. Yet you dissipate your power when you ground it in your fears. You will step into destiny and you can do it now. Or stumble blindly down your path like you don't know that you are walking.
0: Thank you, our listeners, for being with to us tonight, and you as you, you go through your life, life, I pray that you'll be walking in power also.
2: Teacher, the you have made. So don't be afraid, don't be afraid, there is power when you stay, there is power when you go, there is power in the people who are not aware they know, do not give your power As can find you someone try to steal away the light that lets you flower but you are always safe you're aware that you are walking in power